Increment 160 of Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus. And for this increment, which is 160, and the next one, 161, my plan is to do a meditation on the promises. A meditation on the promises. And there'll be a part one and a part two. A meditation on the promises. People like to meditate, but if there's no content in the meditation, it's counterproductive to mental health. A meditation on the promises. Meditation with content, the promises of God, has great profit for the human being's well-being, for the soul, for the spirit, and even for the body. A meditation on the promises, therefore, part one. And from Hebrews 6, 11 to 15, which is the text upon which this meditation rests. So we'll read that after we open in prayer. And Father, we thank you for the content of your word, the content of your promises, the certainty of your promises, and their link with the anatomy of hope. And we thank you for this opportunity, and we pray that our meditation will be acceptable to you and that our thoughts will be directed toward future world and the coming age where we can be fully occupied with Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The meditation on the Promises, Part 1, Hebrews six eleven through 15 which I will read in its entirety in my translation. And we desire for each one of you to demonstrate the same diligence toward the plenary manifestation of hope until the end, so that in the final analysis you will not be lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience experience the promises. Please notice that, experience the promises. For example, when Abraham made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will most certainly bless you and multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. Now, as we're going to learn, what this means is he obtained Isaac, the inchoate promise or the nascent promise or we could even say the promise in embryonic form but he did not receive at that moment the complete fulfillment of the promise and there's going to be a distinction of consciousness there and we'll see how that plays in our meditation so let's begin the meditation on the promises part one our hope is linked to the promises of God which are recorded for us in Scripture. Hope that hitches its wagon to the promises of God is good hope by grace, 2 Thessalonians 2.16. In fact, we are responsible to have confidence in God's promises. It is both intelligent and reasonable to have confident expectation of the fulfillment of the promises of God because God, who promised, is faithful. He's also 
omnipotent. And his omnipotence is married to unrestricted love. Consequently, he is able to do what he promised. And God has demonstrated this total faithfulness and omnipotence married to love by raising Jesus from the dead and by causing him to ascend far above the heavens to be seated at his right hand, the right hand of eternal majesty and of infinite power married to unrestricted love. As we've seen, it's unintelligent and unreasonable to pin our hopes on a utopian dream of an ideal, this-worldly human society brought about by human action or political legislation. At best, that so-called hope is wishful thinking. At worst, it's fatal deception. In Jeremiah 17.5, the Sovereign Lord says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. I don't think it says who trusts in the Taliban here. No, yeah, that's right. It just says in mankind. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, who makes human flesh his strength and turns his heart from the Lord. So the hope we are urged to have and to hold firmly is ultimately the fulfillment of human destiny in a society manifesting divine love in every member. A human society brought about by divine action, mediated by the Son of God, and actuated by the Spirit of God. It's in keeping with reality, and I use that word with a capital R, it is keeping in, with, in reality that we hold on to hope that is anchored in the promises of God. It's beneficial to be attentive to God's promises. It's intelligent to consider them seriously. It's reasonable to pin our hope on them. It's responsible for us to hold on firmly to them and to cherish the promises of God is to be in love with the promise maker and the promise keeper. The promises of God can be embraced with full assurance and absolute confidence, knowing that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Here's a thesis for you. Jesus is the glory for which we hope. Because Jesus Christ is in us, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the things hoped for are already in us and with us. For hope to be reasonable, it has to be the expectation of good promised. For the good promised to be assured completely, it has to be divine good, agathos, divinely assured by divine promises. God has not only given a promise to Abraham, that encapsulates all the promises of God. He has fortified that promise with an oath. And we're going to learn, as we already have, once in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, oaths are a pretty big deal in the Hebrews homily. 
as God's promise is fortified by an oath that comes forth from his absolute veracity, so our hope should be ever more strengthened and intensified until it becomes absolute and unshakable confidence, the outcome of which is great reward. The promises of God guarantee a future that is far above and beyond the expectations of utopian socialists and those who dream of a brotherhood of man without the man Christ Jesus. Here's another thesis for you. It is vain to hope in a brotherhood of man without consideration of the man Christ Jesus, who is both the only mediator between God and humanity and the brother of all human beings. In Hebrews, as in Romans and Galatians, Abraham is called the man with the promises. In Hebrews 7, 6, it says that Melchizedek, the subject coming up in the central section of Hebrews, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the man who had the promises. The promises, plural, really are one singular promise. The promise that in Abraham's seed, all the nations, that is, all of humanity, will be blessed. Genesis 22:18. Moreover, the seed of Abraham is one Jesus Christ. Galatians 3:16, Romans 5:15, 17 and 19. That's why Paul wrote that all the promises of God are unequivocally yes and that they all have their amen in Jesus Christ to the glory of God. More precisely, let's put that in the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19, he wrote, As God is faithful, our message to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, who was proclaimed among you by us, by myself and Silas and Timothy, didn't become yes and no. On the contrary, yes alone has come about in him. This yes is the definitive guarantee of the promises of God. Jesus is this yes. He himself is the ultimate affirmation of God's promises. And this is consistent with one of the closing declarations of Romans, Romans 15, 8. For I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcision on behalf of the faithfulness of God to make good on the promises made to the patriarchs. So this, in turn, is in keeping with the leading statement of the Hebrews homily. Namely, that God who spoke in times past to the fathers in the prophets in these last days has spoken to us definitively in a son. It is reasonable, therefore, to say amen to all the promises of God because Jesus himself is the amen. To the angel of the messianic community at Laodicea, Jesus spoke these words.
Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is the Amen, the solemn affirmation of all the promises of God. Jesus himself is the beginning of the new creation. That new creation that God has promised. Isaiah 43, 18 to 19. Isaiah 65, 17. The new creation will ultimately be comprised of Christ himself. It will be Christ filling up all things with himself. Ephesians 1.10, 1.22, For he is both the creative beginning and the redemptive culmination of creation, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22.13. 2 Corinthians 1.20 goes on to say, For as many promises as God has made are yes, meaning they are affirmed absolutely in him. For this reason, it is through him that we say amen to the glory of God. The eternal Son of God is also the eternal Word of God. And as the Word, he is the eternal amen to all of God's promises. Now these promises are tied to the reality of Jesus as eternal archpriest. For as such, he is the intermediary of all of God's promises. He's the absolute affirmation and embodiment of them as the guarantor. Guarantor is a Greek word that we're going to be coming to in Hebrews 7.20. Two, he is guarantor, and that's E-G-G-U-O-S, unguos. We'd look at it like this in English transliteration. The N would be, the first G would be an N, and enguos. He is, therefore, the guarantor. But he's also, and we've already looked at this word, the mesites, M-E-S-I-T-E-S, and that is the mediator of a new covenant, which, again, is based on, quote, better promises, close quote, than those of the first Sinaitic covenant in Hebrews 8, 6. Better promises than the first covenant. We know those promises have to do with God writing his laws upon the hearts and all knowing him from the greatest to the least, and, well, those promises, mostly encapsulated in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, are better promises than those which accompanied the first or the Mosaic covenant. Now, according to 2 Peter 1, 4, the impact of the exceeding great and precious promises of God that were given to us is the assurance that they convey that we, that is, all of humanity, are to be partakers of the divine nature, a thing that's only possible through Jesus' solidarity with all of humanity 
and all of humanity's solidarity with him. You'll notice I'm not doing a lot of explanation, explication, exposition in this particular message or in the next, but that's because it's a meditation. As we meditate, the Lord expounds his own grace to us and grants us insights. Now, this solidarity of Jesus with all of humanity is one of the prime subjects of Hebrews. As we know, he that sanctifies and those that are sanctified are all of one solidarity. So look again at our text verse today, Hebrews 6.13. For while making a promise to Abraham, God swore an oath by himself. This is what we call the oath fortified promise. Oaths are extremely important in the book of Hebrews. And when God backs a promise with an oath, oath, that's like putting three exclamation points at the end of it. One most intriguing verse to me is Isaiah 45, 23, which speaks of every knee bowing to Yahweh, every tongue confessing him these are both that verse of course finds itself or finds its way into philippians 2 9 through 11 romans 14 10 and in a host of other passages where it's obliquely alluded to but that promise was fortified by an oath i swear god said by myself that every knee shall bow to me. Of things in heaven, of things on earth, Paul expands upon it. And that means that God swears an oath that fortifies the promise of universal worship of Jesus Christ as Yahweh. So we're on some certain ground here. We're going to find out that our hope is an anchor for the soul by the time we finish Hebrews 6. So while making a promise to Abraham, God swore an oath by himself. That's by his own absolute veracity. Since he had no one greater to swear an oath by. Saying, blessing indeed I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. Now, I preserve the original Greek textual idiom here in my translation in order to accentuate the reality that God does exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think. That's why he spoke in language like this. Blessing, I will indeed bless you. Multiplying, I will indeed multiply you. God assured Abraham with an emphatic promise fortified with his omnipotently backed oath that he was going to bless and increase Abraham in a way that would exceed Abraham's most imaginative expectations. God was saying to him, in effect, and I'm paraphrasing what God said to him here in a kind of a short paragraph, I'll bless you more than you can imagine. 
I'll multiply you more than you can understand. For the unimaginably innumerable posterity that I'm promising you will be the same innumerable company of the redeemed of the Lamb of God, my son, my monogenes, my only begotten. This is the very same incalculable company that is described elsewhere as all of humanity whom I justify through my son's obedience and the inestimable mass of humanity, the all who will be made alive in him. That is all humanity. All the nations will be blessed in your seed. All the nations who will be blessed in your seed are all of humanity over the course of all of time and history. Oh, and your seed is one man, Christ. Now let's consider another brief thesis. Resurrection is present in hope. Hebrews 6.15, And so, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. The promise was, it says, obtained by Abraham through the divinely empowered conception of Isaac and symbolically speaking, through Isaac's resurrection. This was not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise, however, not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. The final fulfillment of the promise is an unimaginable and innumerable posterity, which is ultimately all nations being blessed in Abraham's seed, which is Christ. When Abraham had completed his obedience to the will of God and had gone on to completion or spiritual maturity, Genesis 17.1, he did not fully realize the fulfillment of God's promise, but he did receive the full and oath-fortified affirmation of the promise resulting in his obtaining of absolute confidence. Now, this begs the question, what has God promised us, which is only received after we have added patience to faith? In Hebrews 6.12, and God gives us a span of time and space to add patience to faith. And to add perseverance to our confidence. So again, the begged question, what has God promised us, which is only received after we have added patience to faith and perseverance to our confidence? The answer is an unimaginably great reward. Because eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, 
nor has it ever entered the heart of man what God has promised to those who love him. Those who love him are those who continue in his word, who continue in faith and in grace, and who do so through time and adversity, through tests of faith and through divine delays and temporary setbacks, who continue despite the dominant ideology of their time, the religious or anti-religious trends of their time, and the challenges of social shaming, of ostracism, and persecution. Now, just as the seed, capital S-E-E-D, promised Abraham is unimaginably innumerable, so the reward to those who diligently hold on to the hope of the gospel are unimaginably glorious. It's a reward given by the God who does exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask or think, whose power to subject all things to Christ is operative even now and already in us in Ephesians 3.20. And Philippians 3.21. That means the power by which all things are subjected to Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3.20 and 21. Is a power already operative in us. Subjecting the sinfulness and the so-called sin nature in us. Subjecting it to control by God's grace. For sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Now, this is extremely important because the spiritual man or the spiritual woman is the person in whom God's power to subject all things is already operative. In such a person, the conscience becomes the judgment of the judgment seat of Christ internalized. I'll say that again, in such a person, the conscience becomes the judgment seat of Christ, internalized. The heart becomes the home of the Christ and of the kingdom of God. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again because it bears repetition, and it requires repetition, I think. Some commentators propose that for us, Inheriting the promises or coming into possession of what was promised means coming to possess salvation. I'm inclined rather to think that faith and perseverance comes into possession of reward beyond salvation. To say that salvation comes as a reward of perseverance is to make salvation a work of man all over again. So it's true that through faith and perseverance we can inherit or use that word experience. Be feel, feel free to use it in this case. To inherit or begin to experience the great salvation that will be fully realized and experienced in uninterrupted fullness in the age to come. So through faith and perseverance, we do begin to experience that so great salvation. 
that will only be fully realized and experienced and enjoyed in uninterrupted fullness in the age to come. But Hebrews 6.5 says we're already tasting of the powers of the age to come. But even more, it means to receive the reward and glory that is promised to those who persevere in faith, hope, and love. There is a reward for those who demonstrate the same diligence toward the plenary assurance of hope until the end that was exemplified in Abraham and then in Jesus, the supreme exemplar and champion of faith. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Now this is affirmed in Hebrews 10, 35. That what is, what is affirmed is that we expect reward beyond salvation as a result of confidence not discarded and perseverance added. Affirmed in Hebrews 10.35 where the PT urges his readers, don't discard your confidence, which has a great reward. I couldn't say it any more succinctly and concisely than that. Your confidence has a great reward. Confidence means an ongoing confidence because in 10.36 he says, you have need of perseverance. Perseverance in confidence. Continuation in hope. There's a great reward for that. So not discarding confidence means keeping hope alive. Hope is kept alive when Christian faith shows diligence by breathing. Breathing in. Hearing and receiving the word of God. And in breathing out, which is believing assurance of hoped-for things. Believing assurance of hoped-for things separates the men from the boys, so to speak, and the victorious Christians from the defeatists. Hope is a directing of our attentiveness to future world where Jesus the firstborn is being worshipped by all the angels of God. Hebrews 1.6 And here's a thesis. Occupation with Christ is our thesis. It says orientation to future world is occupation with Christ. Now in both of our meditation portions, parts one and two. I'm going to do what I call an Atlat thesis. Atlat, once again, that's where we land with Hebrews, on the level of our time. So I've just kind of made an acronym out of it, Atlat. On the level of our time. Here's an Atlat thesis. The promises together constitute the guaranteed salvific eschatological future of the human race and human society in Uranopolis. I'm going to say that again. There's a lot to it, and I'm going to fan it out only slightly, and then I'm going to repeat it in part two of a meditation on the promises. Uranopolis comes from the Hebrew or the Greek word uranos, 
and the Greek word polis. So it's almost a perfect blend of Orano, heavenly, and polis city. Heavenly city, heavenly city-state. You're already citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. And it's the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem isn't just a location in future worlds. It's something that spreads out throughout the entire universe. And I'll explain that. This is why it's so important for us in our time to know that the summation of promise is a guaranteed salvific eschatological future of the human race and human society in Oranopolis. Oranopolis is the city whose architect and builder is God. God who builds that city is he who builds all things. Put Hebrews 3.4 together with Hebrews 11.16. You got something. Therefore, that city is not just a metro- metropolitan entity like New York City or Pittsburgh or like Paris or London or Lagos, Lagos or Beijing or Sydney or Toronto or Auckland, or Oslo, or Stockholm, or Berlin, or Moscow. It's rather the glorious consummation of human society. Now let's get this now. Oranopolis is rather the glorious consummation of human society when all things are gathered up and unified in God's Messiah, Jesus. All things in heaven and on earth. This discloses the ultimate value of the Hebrews' homily to us in the 21st century. We have the privilege of seeing Jesus. And this is where it gets right down to you and I. We have the privilege of seeing Jesus by a capacity of intellective perception. That means we call it seeing with the mind's eye. We have the privilege of seeing Jesus by a capacity of intellective perception created by the Lord. The why we see Jesus is because God created eyes to see him in us. And they are the eyes of the heart, as Ephesians 1.18 puts it. And we're going to understand just what seeing means by the time we're done with this. So we have the privilege of seeing Jesus by a capacity of intellective perception created by the Lord. Proverbs 20 and verse 12 says, the seeing eye and the hearing ear are from the Lord. God creates the seeing eye, and that means the eyes of the heart as well as the eyes in our head, and the hearing ear, and that means the hearing of our heart, not just the hearing of the ears on the sides of our head. So that's Proverbs 20 and verse 12. I'm going to say this again because it's kind of new and it's extremely important for every individual. We have the privilege of seeing Jesus by a capacity of intellective perception that's created by the Lord in Proverbs 20 and verse 12. And therefore, we have the privilege of having the hope in us that in seeing him with the eyes of the heart, 
we see not only our own destiny completed in honor and glory, but the destiny of all humanity over the course of all time. Both the hearing ear and the seeing eye are creations of God in us. We who have been created in Christ Jesus, says Ephesians 2.10, have been created with eyes that see Jesus and ears that hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to the church's plural. We see Jesus because the Lord made seeing eyes for us in our minds and hearts. We hear what the Spirit is saying because the Lord created in us the hearing ears of the heart. Hearing ears and seeing eyes belong to the spiritual person, not the natural or the carnal one. They are part of the new creation, and they belong to the new self. Ton kainon anthropon. Ton kainon anthropon. The new man, the new self. Ephesians 4.24, also known as ton neon anthropon. The new self in Colossians 3.10. They do not belong to the old self, ton palion anthropon, the paleo man, I like to call him, or the old self. Ephesians 4.22 and Colossians 3.9. The old self is the false self and finds its pseudo-completion in the evil age and the present world. So if you find your life in this world, you're going to lose it in the transformation that occurs in future world. But if you lose your life in terms of its fulfillment in this evil age, you'll find it both even now by regeneration and then completely in future world. The old self is the same as the carnal person, the kind of person that gives momentum to historical decline. The new self is the true self. It is the same as the spiritual person who gives momentum to historical renaissances and the redemption of time, even redeeming time even now, for the days are evil. So the spiritual person with eyes that see Jesus and ears that hear what the Spirit says to the churches is a person with the potential to redeem time a day at a time from evil and therefore to contribute to history. They become not only the readers of history but the makers of history and contributors to renaissances of history. Ephesians 5.16, Colossians 4.5. That's the end of part one of a meditation on the promises. Thank you, Father. And we pray that this will indeed send our minds on a journey of continued meditation and contemplation in which we have as content your promises and most of all your Son 
in whom all those promises are yes and amen.